Hello everybody, welcome to WTS 167, I am Danny, hashtag heel Murray. And I'm Graham Merrigan, Mania Merrigan. Wheeling wild all over the world. Absolutely. Since Since 1984. How are you this week? Yeah, very good. How are you? Content, Graham. Content. Content's a great word. It's been it's been a week of controversies or controversies, oh depending on which camp you come from. In what sense? We we've had to end a long-standing partnership, and Ballybrack has become a hub of spotlight. I didn't think you were going to bring the the partnership. <laughs> well, I figure we have to address it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Merely to say, we're all still friends, but for reasons known to himself, uh, we have had to suspend our official correspondent of WTS Pod for a stupid mistake that he made while whilst intoxicated. Whilst intoxicated, it was a stupid mistake. He's apologised for said mistake. I, yeah. I, I truly believe his apology was sincere. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, and and he know, he knows it was silly what he done. Yeah. But sadly, in 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 this day and age, things like that, uh, you know, they can easily upset people. They so, can. So our official correspondent is is on hiatus for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But we still love him dearly. And uh, I would still have him in to decorate my house any day of the week. And we'll still have him back at some stage after his hiatus. After everybody goes through a period of rehabilitation. Sure, look, if Mike Tyson is being forgiven and is seen as the darling of the world these days, there's redemption for the love doctor, Gary Mackle. Of course there is. He didn't mean it. And um, the thing was, is that ourselves, everyone by now knows the situation. So... Yeah. Um, Gary and certain certain individual who's on Twitter, um, the dealings we had with her were perfect. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She understood. Uh, it was just the other pe- other people and followers of other people that were just kind of um, going on and on. Even after apology was ad- administered, whether they didn't think the apology was sincere or they didn't mm. believe it. Or look. You know, it was sincere, that, and that's up to them. That's up to them. You know what I mean? Ultimately, like, ultimately, she took the apology, and that—that's all that we cared about. Exactly. Yeah, and we've we've discussed her publicly and privately with her, and um, you know, look, in actual, you had previously actually reached out to the person to be on the podcast completely separately, independently, before any of this had ever even happened. Yeah, um, months ago. Months ago. You know, and it's one of them that. <sighs> Obviously, we 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 don't like what happened, and obviously we, you know, we obviously look. We we we've nothing to do with what somebody says on their private Twitter account, but 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 at the same time, we would hope that in the the you know in broad daylight, when everything has been addressed, that that sense prevails, and that this is accepted as. A ridiculous situation under his own making, under Gary's own making, by all means. What he said is he is sorry. He's withdrawn his comments. Um, we're all here to, to, to get on with things and let that be that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and I'm sure she'll continue to do the great things that she does in fighting homelessness and all that kind of thing. Because, in fairness, she, she's a strong voice and a great advocate for. You know the the work that goes on there, so so more power to her. But um, it was out of character for Gary, so yeah, it, it was it was definitely a moment of stupidity on his behalf. What was the next controversy? Jesus. So Ballybrack Football Club. Ballybrack Football Club. Um, like another mistake occurred, and look, yeah. human beings all make mistakes. People are great people but all great people are vulnerable to making mistakes. That's what happened this week with Ballyrack Football Club. 
Um, they're a great football club. Both of us have been members of the football club. Yep. Um, they allowed me to participate in the Mini World Cup um, and win the Mini World Cup, I might add, <laughs> uh, in, in 1996. They've been going, they're in their 44th year. So one mistake shouldn't see the demise of the individual the what? or the individual no, or the, the, the what? The one mistake. No, yeah, but you said that shouldn't something the individual see the something of the individual, what was it? Can't remember now. The demise. The demise. <laughs> you know the words, I always get them wrong. <laughs> yeah, no nobody, nobody wants to see the demise of anybody after the back of this. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, look, you're right. We've look, everybody's had a little laugh and a joke about it and everyone's had their poked their phone at it and that kind of thing and like, let's be 100% honest about this. This went to a scale nobody expected it to. What? But, it, that, but that's even ridiculous in itself, like. Yeah, but that is the social media age now, man. Do you know what I mean? Something catches the attention of a couple Must of been people. A the only person that didn't feckin' tweet about it was Donald Trump. You were nearly expecting him to tweet about it because <laughs> it was on Fox News. The fact that it made front pages of the tabloids is incredible. Now, don't get me wrong; some of the puns were very good. I'll give, I'll give the, I'll give the subs their, their credit, the sub editors. I'll give them their credit. The pun writing was brilliant, but yeah. like it, it wasn't, it wasn't front page news. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And people calling for the club to be fucked out of the league. Would you get a grip yourselves? Oh, stop, lads! Would you, Jesus Christ? Like, yeah. I mean, there's all like kinds. The, whether people want to believe it or not, it was one person that made one mistake. Um, yeah. And story like it's sincerely regrettable, and that person who I know all my life is an absolute legend, and he's put he's he's done maybe thirty plus years service to that mm-hmm. club as, as a player as well. One mistake, get over yourselves. Yeah, look, look, he is a gentleman, and the simple fact here is, as I said, it's a mistake. He said his stories. The club has issued a statement. That should be it now. Yeah. Everybody's had that Should phone. Be. But that's it. Go home, folks. Last, last orders were an hour ago. Go home. <laughs> it's a stormy teacup, you know. It'll blow over eventually. But I, I, it, it was such contrast because on, on Facebook, the individual was getting slated. And because I know him, it was very hard to read, you know what I mean? But then on Twitter, Twitter seemed to have been the funny side uh, of it and, and, and the puns and stuff like that and the memes. What are they called? Memes or memes? I say memes, but I believe they're called memes. Right, whatever they are, everyone knows that they are. And they were all, like, funny and all, but, you know, I think that the nasty side of it, people just ruin it. Yeah, and, and there's always that brigade, unfortunately. There's always a brigade of people who, uh, you know... I, I don't understand anybody who thinks using the word scum or scumbag is appropriate to, to situations. Nasty. Like, I, I, like... It always and it's one of the things that turns me on football in general. You see Liverpool fans talking about United scum and United fans talking about Scouse scum and it's like you live in Sally Noggin. <laughs> you know what I mean? You yeah. what are you talking about, Mank scum? Like get over yourself, you absolute wretched human being. Like, I mean, come on. It's it's ridiculous carry on. By all means engage in friendly banter and have a bit of crack and slag somebody off, but like Labelling somebody scum over something, I, I think people need to just fucking cop on to themselves there to be God's honest truth, which man. Um yep. but yeah, look, look, it's 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 kinda weird that a lot of attention was on Ballybrack this week and it wasn't to do with you, Mero, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Shut up you dickhead. <laughs> That's a good way to end that that topic. Who's right. the guest this week? Man, the guest this week is it's one we've been trying to get together for a while because of uh, one of the rabbit holes that I've gone down. It's got over the line, is it? Say again? You tried to get it over the line, is it? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. Tried to get it over the line. Very good, Graham. Very good. Um, yeah, every so often in this podcast, I self-indulge after I've gone down a rabbit hole with a, a topic that I think is interesting. And a number of months ago, I stumbled upon a New York Times article uh, by a woman called Nina Bernstein... Uh, who wrote a brilliant feature on a place called Heart Island. Now, I don't expect many people to have heard of it, because I certainly hadn't heard of it until I stumbled upon this article. But Heart Island is off the, the Bronx coast of New York, and it is a, it's a large enough island, 
where over a million people are, and none of them are alive. It's a mass burial site for over a million of America's dead. You and love the little rabbit holes, don't you? I do. I love going down rabbit holes, man. And uh, it's like Heart Island. When you re- if you read this article, if you just Google Heart Island New York Times, you'll find this article, and it's free to read. And I'd highly recommend anybody doing it because it's fascinating. And, and as I was reading, I just couldn't believe some of the stories of some of the people, and you know, like. The, the way the way Nina Bernstein and, and the New York Times painted it was this kind of, you know, it's where essentially poor people are buried or people who have no family or no nothing or, you know, kind of where where you can't, it's where you end up if you can't afford to go anywhere else after you die. And there's people, there, there were stories of people who, um, you know, they, they died but and they had a will and they had an estate, but the... Uh, solicitor or whoever who was in charge of their estate was a little bit shady and the money that was put aside for a burial didn't go towards that and they ended up the the, the person who died ended up in this you know grave that is stacked five coffins high 20 coffins wide in a mass uh, burial site and the solicitor up up with the money and ran Um. And there's all kinds of stories like that. The stories of people who, you know, like homeless people who would die and uh, nobody would claim their body, so that's where they end up. Or people give their body to, to, to medical research or science and afterwards, you know, that's just where they go. The, the, the natural cycle is for them to end up there. And I just thought it was very fascinating that, like, how many of us have been to New York and many of us are aware of all these mad tourist attractions, and New York has such a strong Irish connection, and yet there is this island with over a million dead people on it. And come here, yeah. How how did you source the guest? So when I went down the rabbit hole, I found this thing called the Heart Island Project, which is a project that looks to essentially, you know in some way bring the dead back to life by telling their story and by putting a face to the the name or, or even putting a name to the anonymous element element of it and bring all these things together to try and put some sort of fabrics together that if somebody is out there looking for a loved one who has been missing who may just have ended up on it they may stumble upon the Heart Island Project and they may find that one and you know, there are cases of people who've been missing for over 30 years and their family have found them through the Heart Island Project. And I just kind of thought it was fascinating and if anybody was going to be able to tell us about this place, it was going to be our guest this week. Uh, Melinda Hunt is her name. And she's been working on this for for, for years and years. I think, the, I think the Heart Island Project was set up in the early 90s. And the work that Melinda has done is incredible and she, along with the guys who work on the project with her, have brought real closure to people and they've brought, like, families who thought that their loved one was gone forever. She's helped them not only identify and find them, but, you know, give them that closure that so many people don't get to have when a loved one dies. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit morbid and a little bit kind of not what we'd normally talk about, but I just thought the topic <laughs> was so fascinating that we'd, we'd talk to her. And then after we had talked to her, as I said to you, what I thought Heart Island was turned out to be something completely different. The Nina Bernstein article and the news reports that I watched turned out to be very much taking the sensational element of it and not actually just the common sense approach, which is what Melinda told us about. And by the end of it, I went from thinking, this is madness. How does this place exist? Who Who's allowing this to happen to... Are, I wouldn't mind are you doing the outro here in the intro? I'm doing both. <laughs> will we go to the guest we will we'll go to the guest lads hear about Heart Island with Melinda Hunt Melinda from Heart Island thanks very much for joining us what, what is Heart Island for, for those who, who haven't heard of it uh, Heart Island is the location of the city cemetery for New York City which is the public burial ground since 1869 over a million people have been buried on Heart Island and uh, so it's over over a million people, and I suppose what what makes it a little bit 
different to your normal burial ground is that a lot of these will be pauper's graves. Well, not necessarily. Um, if Up until recently, if you donated your body to medicine and the family didn't request the remains or cremains back, then people were buried on Heart Island for that purpose. So people can choose Heart Island. It's a natural burial ground. So if, if you don't want to be cremated or embalmed, it's the least expensive natural burial. There aren't any other natural burial facilities in New York City. Um, what makes it unusual is that it's managed by the Department of Correction, which is operates the city jail. And so they use prison labor to uh, bury people in mass graves. And the public is not allowed to visit Heart Island. Recently, uh, we had a class action lawsuit that the city settled agreeing to allow family members to visit. But now family members have to wait about a year just to get on the list. Wow. And then they're escorted to a grave by, grave by correction officers. And they can only visit that one spot on Heart Island. They can't walk around. They, um, they can't take any pictures. They uh, have to sign a release, relinquish their cell phones, and show a government ID just to visit the grave of a baby. Why, why the secrecy? It's just the, the culture of the penal system. And when Heart Island was first, when it first became City Cemetery, the Department of Corrections and Charities were one city agency. And then they split, and both were on Heart Island, Department of Welfare and the Department of Correction. But then the Department of Welfare moved off when all of the institutions closed, the workhouse and the asylum closed. And so it just sort of, by default, ended up being the Department of Correction being fully in charge. That said, this the prison closed in 1966, and they were trying to transfer jurisdiction to the Parks Department for more than 50 years, but the Parks Department refuses to accept jurisdiction. So in New York City, lots of people are literally buried in bureaucracy. <laughs> like, when you say that the, the, the correctional uh, facilities are run, it's... It, these are mass graves we're talking about, and it's it's guys who are in incarceration who are burying them for. Are, are they being paid to bury them as part of their prison yes, work? Or technically, it's volunteer. Yes, these are um, the way the workhouses worked in in New York City um, is that anyone who is just like you know um, homeless could be sent to a workhouse. And they it was basically sort of a Protestant thing where uh, it was redemption through hard work. And so today still, young men convicted of misdemeanors, they're not felons, but young men convicted of misdemeanors for things like graffiti or turnstile jumping, they're required to work. And so this is one of the jobs of the workhouse, even though we don't still have the workhouse, the sentencing requires that they work. And so this is one of the jobs that uh, young men convicted of misdemeanors do. And where, where does the, the Heart Island Project come into it? What, what work do they do in terms of helping people? Well, we um, requested through Freedom of Information Law access to the records. So we got these ledgers, handwritten ledgers, beginning in 1980 and uh, worked with volunteers to create an online database. And then we developed software so that it's actually a storytelling platform connected to a database of 68,000 people no. so that... We have special software so that each person buried since 1980 has a clock assigned to them that measures the amount of time that they have been buried on Heart Island until somebody adds a story ending their 
or stopping their clock of anonymity and pulling them back into history. So we have, I don't know if you've seen our website at heartisland.net, but we, we have an interactive map now that's created by drone photographs, geotiffs, so that you can, you can see the island really well. So part of the Heart Island Project is making Heart Island visible and accessible to people through alternate means since most people can't visit. Okay, and you, you mentioned there about kind of, you know, that there's been uh, 60, over 68,000 people since um, 1980, and that that is an astonishing figure, you know, but, but at the same time, it, it there's been some kind of interesting stories that have come out of it and also some some i guess happy stories in the sense of families getting closure and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah it's been it's very important to know whether or not someone's alive it just is you know um because you can't you you can't really you know you keep looking for such a long time if you don't know what happened to them and so it's it's really important not just for the families to learn what happened, but then to go back and, and you know, sort of retrace the steps and then to be able to visit. So the access for families is extremely important to them because they are able to gather and go through the process. Additionally, the, these burials are reversible. So I've helped quite a few families um, to disinter relatives and then they returned. To, actually, one of the first families I worked with was a family from Ireland, um, in, whose great uncle was buried on Heart Island in, I think, 1999, and uh, was disinterred and reburied in Ireland. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, it's, it's a really, um, it's, it really makes a family whole again to do that mm. because they feel they come together and they, they just feel that, that they have, you know, taken care of their loved one. And so, yeah. So Mike, Mike Kilmurray was, was reburied in Ireland. So that was one of the first cases that I worked on 1999 wow. when he, he was returned. And there's another, um, young man from Ireland who was buried for 29 years has been disinterred and I don't know if he's been returned yet but he has been disinterred and the family looked for 29 years so you know yeah that is fascinating yeah so he's he's been identified and and whatnot so that's our database goes out like each of the profiles goes out into Google. Hmm. So the search engines pick up all this information that's in our database. And a lot of times somebody will, you know, type in a name and then all of a sudden they go to a profile in our database. Then they get the date of death and whatnot. And then they can begin to order a death certificate and reverse the whole thing. So that's how more recently that's how um, this other young man has been identified. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask about death certificates. Are they issued death certificates at the time of burial, or is it just when they're kind of repatriated? No, the death certificate is is issued by the Department of Health at death. So um, the family, in order to disinter, has to get a death certificate. So you have to be eligible to get a death certificate, and then you have to have that. So we just have burial records. It doesn't have cause of death. But that's very, very helpful to people to get that information because it'll say a place of death, a date of death, the age, and all of that. So it gives the family quite a lot of information to go back and do this. In in terms of, because I, I know we said at the start that, you know, people um, may give their body to science and or they may opt not to be cremated or whatever, and that's how, how they end up on Heart Island. Um but in in the case of say the, the the guys from Ireland, for example, where do do we have information in terms of where they you know immigrants who had been living over there for a while did they emigrate a long time ago or is it a case that you know they just happened to be in New York and un, unfortunate circumstances came upon them and because well, nobody it, was able to claim them? Yeah, 
Claiming simply means that a funeral director was not hired by the family. Okay. So essentially, if it's a, a lot of times, if if the family is overseas, then it's quite um, it's quite easy for them to be out of touch for a period of time. Mm. And if the hospital doesn't have information on the family, or sometimes they just don't do what they're supposed to do then it can take a while for the family to figure it out. Yeah. And so a lot of times, uh, like people can be buried on Heart Island just while an estate is being settled, if it takes a long time to settle an estate, and then they're disinterred once the estate is settled. That's, that's great. Bizarre. That seems so bizarre right? in a way, yeah. So, so it's just, there's a lot of different ways to, dis- you know, to disappear in New York City. And yeah. so... But it's not the same as the pauper funerals, uh, pauper burials in Europe, mm, uh, okay. because there there isn't a religious component um, in the in cemeteries in the United States in quite the same way. Like the Catholic Church has its own cemeteries, and other churches have cemeteries, but the the state only has jurisdiction over over. Uh, nonprofit cemeteries, private cemeteries, or or these public cemeteries, but not the religious ones. So um, there's, you know, and and sometimes the records for um, religious cemeteries are not well kept either. And so people can be buried in religious. I, I was working on um, a story last, a search last week for an Italian family. And they had assumed that the grandmother was buried on Hart Island. In fact, she turned up in St. Raymond's in the Bronx when we found the death certificate. And then the family called St. Raymond's, which was the, the big Catholic cemetery in the Bronx, and they didn't have any records of her being buried there, even though that's what the death certificate said. So, so it's, it's just, in some ways, it's just a big city problem. Mm. But the the private cemeteries that are not religious are actually very well managed because the state is, has very tight restrictions on that. And so you're almost better off with a non-religious cemetery yeah. because the state doesn't have any oversight over what happens in, in the churches. They they have their own property and their own laws. And, and so... And also, the the churches can reuse graves, as as can city cemetery. Whereas the private cemeteries, you cannot reuse graves. So, in, you can reuse graves, but not in the United States. I'd imagine as well for for a lot of people, especially in New York, like a, a grave in a private cemetery might be some of the most expensive real estate there is. Well, no, uh, not the most expensive, but it. it <laughs> I think new graves are like twenty thousand dollars. Still, that's for for. It's you know. way too much, and even but even just a cremation and a burial in a family plot that you already own will run you twenty five hundred dollars. Wow! So, it's not really affordable. That's why yeah, we're trying yeah. to turn Hart Island into a park and make it a nice place because, for many people, that's the option, and it shouldn't be a disgraceful option. So, it, you know, it's a really beautiful location on Heart Island. Mm. And uh, it's, you know, if you're not interested in paying a funeral director, it's the only option you have. Yeah. So it, it, there's no reason it can't be a nice place. But it, because it's run by the penal system, it's always going to be shameful because that's the essence of the penal system, right? It's, it's a shaming institution. That's, that's how it yeah, works. Yeah. It's are they all over the world? Excuse me? Are they all over the, the, the United States? No, actually, uh, it's just un- it's unusual. There, there are other potter's fields in New York State even, and they're not run by the penal system. It just has to do with how the, um, the agencies were, were arranged, how they were set up at the time that this opened. Okay. So it's it's really particular to New York City that this is the case. But then it's this is the largest city, and lots of immigrants come through here. So it tends to be you know really full of people from other places whose families aren't nearby, 
and able to navigate the bureaucracy to, you know, collect their relatives. Given kind of how, how particular it is in the scene that you, you, you've set there, it, you know, like, are, the, are the public very aware of Heart Island? And if they are, is there kind of an ill sentiment towards it, given it's run by the people? Well, we're trying to do that. Yes, it's 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 as I said, it's it, it's instantly stigmatized because the Department of Corruption is involved. So we're working on legislation to try and transfer it out of the Department of Correction okay. uh, to the Parks Department because we feel that's the only agency that can really handle a landscape uh, historic cemetery and. Um, it, it just instantly changes the feeling of the place if the Parks Department is managing it versus the Department of Correction. Yeah. And even if you had inmates still conducting the burials, it's different to, you know, call the Parks Department than to call the Department of Correction. I mean, essentially anyone who's an immigrant isn't going to call the prison system, especially with what's happening to immigrants in the United States these days, right? There's just, there's just no way you are going to call the Department of Correction and show them an identification. <laughs> You're just not going to do that, right? And so, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a barrier that is, is so unfair to people who are from other countries. In terms then of kind of the, the attention that it does get, because you know how how I kind of found out about Heart Island was um, just somebody on Twitter shared a New York Times article from a couple of years ago, um, that kind of went into a lot of detail about it, and 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 it was a big big article, and then from there, I kind of looked. I think story. that writer Bernstein um, made it darker than it is. I, I was going to uh, say, yeah. Yeah, I think she I think she was really she didn't think that natural burials were a real option and I I felt that she was a little bit biased. Okay. Because you know, if if you say well this is a terrible place and so many people have no option, then that's just heaping more shame on them. If if you're being shamed in the New York Times in addition to being shamed association with the penal system, that, you know, it's, it, the way to, to reduce the shame is to make it a, a normal welcoming place in which it's okay to be buried in a common plot because that's what happens in family tombs anyways. Everybody gets in together, mm. even if they don't get along, that's where you end up. You're all in the same place. <laughs> So, you know, right? Yeah, so true, yeah. essentially, you know, you can you can all get in there together and get along in the end, and that's kind of a good message, right? <laughs> but so you you have to you have to think about it differently, and that's where we're trying to work with the city on this is unnecessarily dark. It's a really beautiful location, mm. and it's very spiritual because so many people are buried there. And because they can recycle these graves, they'll never run out of burial space. And it's a, a tremendous service to New Yorkers if you if you turn it into a respectful place to be buried. So what's the problem here? The problem is that people are afraid to open up a can of worms, right? It just seems like it's 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 too big a too big a problem. But if you don't manage your cemeteries in a way that's respectful, then you don't keep your history, and and it's a terrible message yeah. to your citizens that that you can't, you know, honor the generations that went before. So, if you don't, do that work, you'll be open. Go ahead. Oh, Sorry, is is there a kind of war, worms to be open? Do you think? Well, there are problems out there, but they're not. I mean, there are problems in the city, right? There's huge homeless problem, and there's crime, there's all kinds of things. But this is a place, cemeteries are places of reconciliation. So they need to be special. They need to be peaceful. They need to be places where people can heal. And if you don't have those places set aside, then it's doubly hard in the city to get to that point where communities can, can you know, preserve their identity and feel that that they're whole, right? 
So it's an essential feature that needs to be needs to be properly cared for. So they'll get around to it. I don't know how we'll get there, but it's not possible to handle your handle your debt like this and have your community really function. Yeah. It's it's just not possible. So that's you know. Um, it, it just, in every culture, handling the dead is, is important. And, and in New York City, you know, people, we have people from all different cultures. So you have to find a respectful way to do it. And you have to make it um, known to them what they're agreeing to in agreeing to a city burial. It has to be correctly explained that, that you know, there isn't going to be a gravesite there forever, it's a it's a numbered plot, and uh, you can go there. You maybe can't go there all times of the year, but it's it needs to be normalized in that in that whatever it is, you have to tell people that, so that they they if they that's not what they want, they can make sure they join the Catholic Burial Society or the Jew, Jewish Burial Society and have that arrangement made. But I think mo most people just assumed that the city cremated and that was that. Mm. And the city doesn't cremate at all, actually. The only way you can get a cremation is by hiring a private funeral director. So well, it's, it's, it's fascinating because in, in the kind of 20 odd minutes we've been speaking, kind of you've, you've taken what kind of from, as I said, that New York Times article and then the kind of other pieces, because there's some clips from like old news broadcasts and that kind of thing that, that kind of paint not a sinister kind of view of Heart Island, but certainly a little bit darker. And even how you've described it there, I noticed that kind of they use the term mass grave, which automatically has the negative and not to take uh, or not to, you know, over encourage a Donald Trumpism here, but uh, fake news is coming to mind kind of how they're portraying it against how kind of the Heart Island project is portraying it. Yeah, well, because of how um, I, I, it's a mass grave, but it's an orderly grid. Mm. So it's not like dumping the bodies in there. It, it, it was a system of burials developed during the Civil War so that they could bury soldiers on battlefields and then disinter them and rebury them in national cemeteries or return them to their church plot or whatever they were going to do. So it's not the same as throwing people in a trench. It's a much more orderly process. And it's actually, you know, all the cemeteries, people are buried really close together anyways, right? I mean, what's the difference if you've got one inch in between you and the next guy or one foot? It, in the end, it doesn't matter that much, right? So the, the point is, is that the city doesn't embalm and they don't cremate and they do return family, uh, you know, loved ones to their families up to 30 years after burial. So it's a tremendous service, right, to be able to do that. And so then all you have to do, it's the surface treatment of, of how do you conduct these burials and how do you talk about it and how do you provide access and how do you maintain the landscape and the storytelling and all of that stuff. So our effort has been to reintroduce storytelling, to reconnect the cemetery to the city through storytelling because we have cloud-based storytelling now, and we got all the GPS information from the Department of Correction, and we have this database, so then you can have virtual storytelling. And my feeling is that you should have it a totally natural cemetery, you should reforest the whole island, and then people just figure out where they're going on their phones, which is how we navigate anyways now. And then you can tell the stories on your phones, and you don't have these markers, and it's a sustainable you know, natural burial site that's a reprieve from the busy city. Yeah. And it's 131 acres, so it's it's really a beautiful location out in the Sound. And there's no reason it can't be, you know, one of the great uh, cemeteries in, in the United States or the world because there are other cities don't have this much room to bury. New York City actually has enough room so that if everybody chose to be buried on Hart Island, this system of burials is so efficient and uh, and so 
you know, sustainable, that we don't have a problem with burials. Yeah, it, because of that. So what you want to do is properly explain it to people. And I think younger people would rather not hire funeral directors. They'd rather have, you know, their friends and relatives buried in a parkland that you can get in your canoe and go out there and, you know, hike around and enjoy yourself. Um, in a natural setting. I think people would really like to do that. And I think we all have phones and we can get it, we can use our phones and we can do this. Yeah, so it's an opportunity that is unusual, actually, because most of the cemeteries are full and can't be recycled. But that's not true in this one. So, yeah, so it's, 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 it's completely mishandled right now, but it's not hopeless. Yeah, when you're saying that about kind of getting in a canoe and you know, going for a little hike and that kind of things. And I'm in my head thinking of Christmas every year when I pop down to Dean's Grange Cemetery to go see my grandparents. And every year without fail, you know, the past by graves that have been abandoned since, you know, the 1930s and, and before. And it's an uneasy feeling. And then, you know, the idea of kind of popping in a canoe and, you know, turning it into a little family get-together is a lot more appealing than that dark, damp, kind of cold sterile environment you know right whereas and and there's lots of wildlife on heart island and whatnot so you know um if if we if we could and there's a whole green burial movement in europe too to have natural burials in forested areas and whatnot and i think i think there's it's a it's a amazing opportunity to do this and uh, and so the city council, I think the speaker was out there yesterday visiting the AIDS graves. And I think I think it will turn because the problem in New York is always having enough land. And the thing is, once something's a cemetery, it can't be developed for anything else. So the laws prevent you from using it any, for anything other than parkland. Mm. And and the laws also allow you to recycle these graves uh, after the the bodies have fully decomposed to skeletal remains, and so I think everybody would be fine with that if they knew that's what they were getting that you're donating your body to the earth, and you could donate your body to science and then donate it to the earth, and it's all completely free, so you can do that. Yeah, yeah. and. I don't know, but we insist upon seeing things as darker than they are yeah. in some ways. But this isn't one of those things that needs to be so um, – it doesn't need to be this dark. Yeah, but yeah. I, think, I think it's that we just think that, you know, that poor people just don't have any friends. But they do have friends. Mm. Yeah. yeah, And people yeah. do care about about – people in their communities and they and they don't want to live in fear that they're going to be disappeared onto some island managed by the penal system right that's the fear but 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 the idea that i've had people ask me well how do i get buried there and i'm like just put it in a will that you want a public burial and then that's what you get you have the right if you die in new york city to be buried on hot island and you you mentioned there about um you know telling the stories and and you know it, it makes it much more humane that that these people's stories are being told are there any kind of stories that down the years have, have really touched you or that have, have stood out as being you know above ordinary in in, in that person's journey well these are all the better stories right <laughs> because because they're more interesting right mm. the, the, the li- these are lives that had twists and turns and and whatnot so these are very interesting people there's a lot of artists buried there um, there's you know people that died of diseases and okay. you know infectious diseases and whatnot um, the and, and you know 1918 flu epidemic there's a huge number of people buried there. And then there are the stories that are in every family, which is someone who suffered from alcohol abuse or addiction or mental illness and who became, you know, sort of detached from the community and no one heard from them. I mean, those are in everybody's families, right? Yeah. So these are, these are part of us as a culture and we don't feel whole if 
certain people are left out. You know, uh, you're you're fearful of being, you know, associated with that person because they were disappeared onto this terrible island, right? But but there needs to be a, a sort of um, mitigation of of that of those feelings, so that we take better care of each other. You know. And so that part of the reconciliation is to be able to visit this place and to say goodbye and to think, oh, I should have been a better friend. And then you sort of resolve, well, well, I'm still, I can still be a good friend to other people or to this person by visiting their grave. So that's the that's the thing. The message of it is that oh, we've always we've all got these things that we should have done and that we should still be doing. And that's the reminder there. So if you don't go through that process, then you just, you know, you, you, it's always in the back of your mind sort of weighing you down that this happened. That's, you know, I didn't say goodbye to somebody. I should have done this. And so then if you get around to doing it, you feel better. True. Um, I suppose, and then for, for people listening, Dan, if if they want to find out more about the Heart Island Project, or if they, they they want to see what you guys are doing, where can they find out information? Um, it's just heartisland.net, and I work with lots of people in Ireland. Actually, we've had uh, lots of um, lots of families come through, lots of journalists and whatnot, lots of donations from Ireland. Those are always really welcome. So you know, it's uh, I think it's a, a bigger part of Irish culture. To visit cemeteries, it's uh, and also the storytelling yeah, is, is is fundamental. You know, all the sad stories are fundamentally, you know, something that Irish people know how to do. We so love love misery over here, Melinda. We yeah. love misery. Well, you love, like you like funerals as well. You like talking about it, yeah. <laughs> right? It's not just the. It's not just. It's not just the wallowing in misery. It's yeah. the stories that go with it that's important, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. That's we love funerals as well, Melinda. Yeah. What? We love funerals as well. Yeah. yeah, the whole deal. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, well, there's lots of Irish people in New York, so it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a, you know, it's one community, really. Amazing, so. amazing. Well, we, we'd encourage people to check out heartisland.net and, and hear more about the great work the project's doing. And as I said, check out some of the incredible stories of uh, the, 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 the 68,000 people who since 1980 have been um, put there. But Melinda Hunt, thank you very much for your time and uh, apologies for technical difficulties at the start. But I uh, really appreciate sure. you joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care. And take care, Melinda. Thanks, thank so. you. Okay, Bye-bye. Bye. So it wasn't what I thought it was after all. <laughs> everything I read and everything I watched painted this real kind of dark, sinister thing. And as, as, as for all the reasons Belinda pointed out, it's it, that, that's how it's construed. But then if you strip them away, it's actually a kind of nice thing. you know. Yeah. And one of the things that went through my head, and I, I think you probably watched it as well, do you remember RTE a number of years ago done the documentary about Glasnevin? Oh, uh, unreal. An unbelievable... And again... It's a documentary about a graveyard. It, you, you would think it can't be that exciting or whatever. And maybe not exciting, but definitely fascinating. But it, 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 that was done by Eamon Thomas, was Mac it? Thomas, yeah, yeah. And, That's what Ali Racky was. Yeah, and I, I don't want to say what happened at the end of that because, my God, it absolutely ripped the feelings out of me. The, the, yeah. ending, the ending to that was just my word. like. But one of the things that was said in that, it was a couple of people who worked in the graveyard were talking and one of them was saying like that oh they, they just want to be buried and that's how they are and then the other person was kind of saying oh no it's cremation for me Jesus the thought of being alone down there in that dark hole for, for all eternity is the worst thing yeah. in the world for me and just as she was talking about the whole thing of kind of like what's the difference between being having a foot between you and your neighbour or an inch between you and your neighbour I don't know why in my head I instantly went to it would be better crack if there was about 400 of you in the hole, wouldn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> if there was to be a great resurrection, as we're told there will be, I'd much rather be in a group of 400 digging me way out than trying to scratch me way out alone. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it was yeah. interesting, though. It was very interesting. It was not like our usual podcast. No, it wasn't. But, uh, and it wasn't what I thought it was. 
like I, I genuinely would recommend going and reading that that New York Times article or or watching some of the news reports because even how they do it, like like even when she was talking about kind of um you know the 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 prisoners or whatever the guys in the detention center or whatever who do the burials and that kind of thing. Like yeah. she, she made it seem like it was just kind of yeah, that's just the way it is, blah blah blah. But when you when you read the New York Times article and all, you know it's it's all shrouded in secrecy and nobody's allowed on the island and you know these burials happen and you're not very American, very American. That's one of those things that's almost typical America. But like, it's still it's still mad. Like, look, yeah, I I just I'm still fascinated by it. I'm still very very curious as to how the whole thing. I suppose the curiosity for me now is what will happen in the future with this place. But yeah. I still think it's mad that, you know, so many Irish people flock to New And even at this time of year, man, people be flocking over to do Christmas shopping, seeing as though the boom is back. How many times are we all going to drunkenly shout towards a fairy tale in New York at each other? <laughs> somewhere out there, there's this lonely little island off the coast of New York housing over a million dead people since the 1800s. Madness, like, madness. I'd love to see a documentary on it. Yeah, I, and I think some of the stories of the people, if you go onto the Heart Island website or if you read any of those articles that I was talking about, some of the stories of some of the people are, are, are incredible. And how, you know, their life panned out and how they ended up there is just madness, like. Like she said, she's dealing with a lot of Irish families as well, so that's interesting. Yeah, only this year, only in August, that, that one she mentioned, the 30 year one. Um, that yeah. was only in August that that all panned out, and um, I actually tried to get in touch with the family, but just obviously it was a bit raw and a bit emotive for them. This, as I said, I've been trying to pull this podcast together for a while, and in the end, it was kind of not what I thought it would be. But but originally, when I contacted Melinda, she said about that family, so I tried to get in touch with them, and I thought this would be deadly. We'll get Melinda side of it, we'll get that family side of it, we'll tie it all together, make a deadly little podcast. It didn't come to be, but it's still fascinating the way everything panned out, and. Look, there's an Irish family out there who have been searching for somebody for 30 years and ultimately they're getting to bring them home thanks to that project. It's madness, like. Love it. That was good. It was great to great to talk to you. It was. It was lovely to talk to you too. And lads, we're coming into Christmas, so we'll try to make them a little bit more cheery going forward, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good um, Lord. Where can you listen to us? You can get us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podbean. Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, anywhere and everywhere there is a podcast. Search for WTS Pod and you'll find us. You can go to WTSPod.com or check out Facebook.com forward slash WTS Pod Ireland and you'll find all of our previous 166 plus a few more episodes that are out there. You can get us on Twitter and at WTS Pod. He's at American Mania. I'm at Dan Joe Murray. This has been WTS 167. Until next week. Clear eyes. Full hearts. And lose. Once you go brack, you never, never go, go back. back. Too sweet. <laughs>